0: So his kingdom is here and it will grow to fill the earth. So the idea is, is that the establishment of God's kingdom is rooted in the destruction of the old covenant, the establishment of the new covenant kingdom with the kingdom of Christ, the Messiah, Jesus. He is now king over all. And then there's lots of components to this story, of course, but then he, what does he tell us? Disciple the nations. So that's our calling. That's that's the exciting calling of being Christians. Our calling isn't to sit and wait, to, to hope to be raptured, you know? Our calling is to go and make disciples of all the nations. Why? Because Messiah has conquered the principalities and powers.
1: Many millennia ago, at the peak of Mount Hermon in the Golan Heights, a group of divine beings known as the Watchers, or Sons of God, descended in an act of rebellion against their king, Yahweh. By teaching them the secret knowledge of the cosmos, they sought to wrestle dominion of the earth away from humanity. They bore children with them, and their offspring were both human and divine. These giants are the demigods of old, and the events that transpired would forever alter the course of human history. At Camp Hermon, we discuss the oddities of the ancient world and their lingering impact on our world today. Welcome. Hey, campers, we are back for another exciting episode. I'm Chris Price. I'm Tori. On tonight's episode, we are going to talk to one of my favorite authors, Brian Gadawa, about end times prophecy. And we have a lot of questions, don't we, Tori?
2: We have quite a few questions, Chris. <laughs>
1: quite a few, quite a few. And, um, Tori, before we jump in with Brian, do we have any camp announcements?
2: Funny you should ask. We actually do. For those of you who don't know, we officially launched our memberships. Chris and I are super, super excited. Um, and Dr. Judd is excited as well. I feel Like I can say that Um, memberships are $5.99 a month. So it's about the price of one fancy coffee, depending where you live, maybe a little more, maybe a little less. Um, And yeah, it includes a private members page. We're going to have private members chats, some exclusive episodes. What else do we have, Chris?
1: We've got our private Facebook group, which is kind of like a community group where I'm interacting Tori, Mike Stibbs, who is our creative director, Enoch Putris, our producer, you know him from some of our episodes and his channel, The Rundown of Our Reality. And of course, the beloved Dr. Judd Burton will all be there interacting with all of the members on a on a regular basis. And one thing that we plan to do in the future, not just plan to do, we're going to do, we're our goal is to drop a short documentary every month. So we'll be working hard to to produce those documentaries. And then we have our anti-Diluvia 10 part miniseries that's that uh, we're starting production on very soon. So we're really excited about that. So you guys can go to campermon.com, sign up, be a member. Uh, pretty much. We're going to be using those funds to produce these documentaries, to produce the podcast and just everything else that we have planned. Super cool. So we would, we'd love to have you guys join us. So without further ado, Brian Gadawa, thank you for coming back on.
0: Great to be here.
2: Great to see you, Brian. Yeah.
0: Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, absolutely.
1: So, Brian, we, we want to do a, as deep of a dive as we can on end times prophecy. So I have got a host of questions.
2: A deep, shallow dive, right? <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah,
0: exactly.
2: Because we only have about an hour. <laughs> Uh, okay. i gonna safely dive in to the shallow end. Yeah, no.
0: <laughs> However long you want, I'll be here.
2: Um, thank you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We appreciate that. Let's kick this off with talking about the rapture. What is the rapture? Is there a rapture?
2: Why do people think there's a rapture if there's not a rapture?
0: Well, I guess you got to start somewhere, don't you? Um, so the rapture of course by now everyone in the in the in America at least knows about it because I mean when I was a kid uh, it was virtually unknown and and the only thing out there was uh a thief in the night which was this real bad little Christian movie that scared the hell out of Christ, out of people to make them become Christians thinking that uh, you know it's the depiction of the end of the end times and all this and the antichrist and all this stuff um but nowadays, of course, people know are familiar with the notion that uh you know the rapture is the belief that there's um that 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 sometime in the course of fulfillment of scripture, uh there's going to be a uh rapture of the saints, and those Christians will be uh rise up to meet Christ in the air. Mm-hmm. 1 Thessalonians 4 is probably like the the only possible pass, passage that I think you can, you know, uh, get an actual explicit description of what people think is the rapture. And so, you know, um, that describes uh, verse 14, you know, we believe Jesus died and rose again and that God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. But those who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so will we will always be with the Lord that's pretty much the only passage. Now there's a lot of passages that some Christians believe refer to a rapture, but it's all implied or it's imposed by their own um, commitment to their, their end times theology. And uh, so the question here is, you know, what is that? And, 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 and when does that occur? And the major problem is, is that many, you know, many in the left behind world have, traditionally seen that first Thessalonians four is referring to uh it's not the second coming it's actually the rapture occurs seven years before uh Christ comes because they're raptured first supposedly then there's you know the seven-year tribulation and then Christ returns after Armageddon and all that that's what they believe and the problem with that is this this is saying Christ is coming, and so they they ha- they have to. Fit, well, how how can Christ be coming, but it's not his second coming, right? They create a scenario, and they must be just coming in the air to take him, and then he goes back into heaven. Of course, the text doesn't say that, right? And that's the part of the problem with uh, theological eschatological commitments that people have. Um, the problem is that this verse can be interpreted many different, in many different ways, but but it, that's the basic belief. And the problem is, is that within the Christian church, there's some dominant views of end times. Like you have premillennials that believe Christ will come before the millennium, before he comes and reigns for a thousand years. Mm-hmm. Then there's postmillennial. He, they they believe that Christ will come after his reign of a thousand years. And then there's amillennial, which is, that the, the millennial reign is now it's figurative, et cetera, and that there is no, you know, it's a different kind of scenario. And the reason why that's all relevant is because that determines then where you place these factors. And then within the pre-millennial camp, there's dispensationalism. And there's the belief that the rapture comes before the great tribulation, which is supposed to be this dramatic event. And then there's some who believe he he the rapture occurs in the middle of the tribulation. And then those who believe the rapture occurs at the end of the tribulation. And so there's all these various varieties of when it occurs and, and if it occurs. And yet, even within evangelicalism alone, there's all different varieties. But I'm of the conviction that that this is not referring to uh, this passage is not referring to this rapture that occurs before seven years tribulation, etc. The problem is is that we can address some of these individual things, but we have to understand that all these various beliefs about the end times are deeply embedded within systems of thinking that that Christians bring and impose on the text and. Of course, they'll say, no, I got it from the text, but the, in truth, you'll see that a lot of passages don't fit with their views, and so you have to finagle them around or reinterpret them. And that's the big problem with um, a, a lot of eschatology is there are many different views out there just of the rapture alone. And, um, and the problem is that um, Christians are so committed to their views that they're very unwilling to listen and consider other views. And so it ends up being very much of a heresy match. You know, you're a heretic, no, you're the heretic. And that's going to be the problem in a lot of, of anything that we, we address here, but yeah, so that's, you know, roughly on the surface, that's what the rapture is supposed to be.
1: Before I ask the next question, I want to ask, what do you, so what do you think? What's, what's your rapture? Do you think that there's going to be a a catching away at any point or are people just misinterpreting this text and just kind of running away with it?
0: Well, yeah, I do think they're running away with it, but the, the, you know, the best example, so traditionally most, most orthodox premillennialists argue that this Thessalonians four is the second coming of Christ and that therefore what they call the rapture is just simply, you know, the Christians who are there when Christ returns, he's going to raise the dead, which will be those who are literally dead. And he's going to transform the Christians who are there. And so if you want to call that a rapture, if you, you know, there are different ways of interpreting that passage, but that's sort of the the dominant theme, but um, it's only in recent times. You know, within the last 150 years, that the the dominant sort of belief beca- became this rapture thing, where it's like, oh no, this is this is before the tribulation. So therefore, the coming of Christ that this passage describes is he only comes in the air. He doesn't. He doesn't. And he returns to have. He doesn't set foot. But, but like I said, that's that's not in the text. So, th- this is a passage I think is just it's confusing, and and I think it requires you know. Uh, uh at length discussion in context with many other passages to understand what it really means and what it's all about
2: wait brian what was the name of that movie again the thief in the
0: night yeah thief in the night there was a. Okay. Uh, like in the 60s, I think they made it. Of course, now the big movie is left behind or the big series that most people are aware of because it was so massively important. So, so you know, I, I would call that the dominant, view, you know, there's lots of different interpretations. And even within that camp, there are. So we just need to be aware when we're talking about these issues, there's lots of different views. And every view that anything I'll address, people will have in their minds, but what about this? But what about that? So we have to understand everything's a system. And that's what makes it so difficult because we have systems discussing individual things that are reinterpreted within their systems. And that's what makes it such a difficult discussion to have.
2: Right. It's like, unconscious beliefs that you don't even know that you've adopted yes yeah i definitely am. Um, so i grew up with the left the kurt cameron left behind is the movie that scarred me you know as a child and so i wake up in the middle of the night thinking my parents are going to disappear in their pajamas we're going to be laying in the bed you know um yeah but so i mean and i don't know full disclosure we said in the last episode with you you know like a pan millennialist i think it'll all pan out in the end so that's kind of that's kind of my current view that i'm adopting but um I guess I'm just starting, I definitely grew up thinking that there was a rapture and everything, but, um, I had a teacher at Christian school and, you know, in high school, um, who kind of pointed out, like, if there's a rapture and that's Jesus' second coming, then that means there's a third coming later, you know? So it's like, well, we don't ever talk about a third coming, you know, but it's like, okay, so he comes, he raptures us and then he comes back again. So anyway, that got me, I was like, wait a second. Yeah. There's, there's no third coming. So
0: and and my point there is just to say in that passage very clearly, yeah, that that's the strong problem with the dominant view that that's the rapture, right? And and people say, well, then that's the post tribulation rapture, but it, it doesn't matter because it's all tied up with the second coming anyway, according to uh, you know the dominant traditional interpretation anyway. So, uh, but what you just said is exactly where. The views begin to break down when you see when you look at the text, and you say, "But that's not what the text says." And so that would require a third coming. and And then what does coming even mean? The word coming is is there's a couple different words erkamai and Parisisee, par- which is a dominant one. But you know, what that actually means is the presence of the Lord. And that's a whole nother thing to discuss. what does that what does that even mean? Because the coming of Christ. Christ comes in the Bible in many different times in many different ways. You know, the seven churches, he comes to each of the churches. Is that the second coming? No, it's multiple comings to the church. There are God comes to many nations to judge them in the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, Jesus says he comes to Jerusalem to judge. And so that's a whole thing to talk about, but this is why I like, I almost prefer, you know, the exegetical approach where it's like, you know, take some, take a dominant passage like Matthew 24 or, or talk about the book of revelation. Cause you, so this is going to be a problem. I don't know what your questions are, but you know, the tendency is to bounce around to this verse and that verse. And it's just such a, such a dangerous thing because while I do believe that the whole context of the Bible should integrate, of course, but the problem is, is the bouncing around tends to confuse and obfuscate rather than clarify. But if you like, take a look at one contextual thing, like the book of revelation, what is that about? What's its theme? What's its narrative arc? And you look at that picture, then you start to see what it's really about. And then you can address these other passages too, but, but that's to me is the best way to approach this rather than, uh, when is the tribulation? When is the rapture? When, what is, who is the antichrist now? These can be answered, I believe so there's no, uh, there's really no passage that really talks about the rapture other than this possible passage. And they, they'll interpret it into other places like, um, you know, in the book of revelation, the church isn't talked about after he, or he, he tells John come up here and then the church isn't talked about. So that's a metaphor for the rapture, you know, and the church isn't talked about after that, which means the church is gone on earth. Well, that's not true. The church is talked about on earth. It's just not using the word church. It's using the saints or it's using, you know, God's people, but, So, the rapture is one of the big sticking points for a lot of people, for sure.
2: Yeah. Brian, I agree with you, you know, because most of the passages that make up our collective and times views, whatever they are. It's like, even though all of the books in the Bible are collectively God's word, and it's like what the Holy Spirit inspired, you know, but like Matthew was written independently of Thessalonians and independently of Revelation. And so, but we we it's like a buffet, right? Because we're like, well, oh, Revelation says this and Thessalonians says this and Matthew says this. And so,
0: yeah, it's tough. I'm not saying that it's impossible or that we shouldn't cross reference, obviously, because we do cross reference. And that's that's sort of inescapable in a way. But I'm just talking about. But we have to be aware that's the danger, you know, that because, you know, like like I've spent, um, for instance, uh, I've spent some podcast series where we literally just walk through every verse in Matthew 24 to discuss how it was fulfilled in the first century. Many Christians believe Matthew 24 was something talking about the future second coming of Christ in our future. But um, I think that it's clear that in the text, it says, no, no, it was something that occurred that Matthew 24, that those series of events actually were uh, occurred in the first century and um, going through them step by step is how you see and understand it contextually narratively rather than this pick and choose thing it's a danger but nonetheless i'm sure that you know we all have these curious things what about the antichrist you know so yeah whack away (laughs) whack-a-mole
1: Uh, we, I'd like to talk about Matthew 24 in a little bit, but before we get to that down the road here, I'd like to talk about is partial preterism is partial preterism biblical and what do partial preterists believe?
0: Well, the word preterist is Latin and it just means, um, uh, before or prior to. So it's the, it's the belief that something has, it's a, it's a reference to prophecy when it's referred to as prophecy, it's a reference to prophecy already fulfilled. Um, and so what that means is, is all Christians are preterists, meaning, um, we all believe that the messianic promises were fulfilled in the past in Christ, you know, that he would be born of a virgin and that he would be born in Bethlehem and on and on. You know, what is it? 300 or more prophecies about Messiah. So all those are fulfilled in the past. Does that make them irrelevant for today? No, of course not. But it, it it's in, to that degree, all Christians are preterists in that sense of prophecy. So the question is, then the other term is futurist, which is the, the term that a prophecy is yet to be fulfilled in our future or in the future of the uh, you know of the person speaking and so these are the two poles that that oppose each other and so anytime you're you're looking at a pro, uh, prophecy the question is was this already fulfilled or is this something in our future the assumption the preconceived unproven assumptions by many Christians about a lot of prophecy in the New Testament is that it's yet in our future because they don't realize how it was already fulfilled in the past. And that's driven by a theological paradigm that has very specific agenda. So when we, but, but what happens is, The generic term preterist then is used for the certain sort of camp of people that tend to argue uh, that most all the prophecies or all the prophecies about the the last days or the end times are prophecies that are in reference to the first century and the coming of the kingdom of God. Uh, And futurist is the term that generally tends to refer to they believe the prophecies of the last days and the end times are a reference to our future and uh when they were written in the time of the new testament they were future right they were all future because they were saying this is going to happen but the question is did they happen within 40 years from then or are they going to happen two thousand years from now and the key to that is to is mostly in it, it you're not mostly. I mean, it's going to be in the text, which is why you have to look at everything in context and, you know, every every issue in context. And and hopefully, hopefully I can bring some of that to to the to the table here tonight.
1: Yeah, I hope so. I think you can actually.
0: Which is well, oh, by the way, that, and that's why it's it's a very dangerous thing whenever if I can just say this. Uh, I know a lot of these these prophecy guys, they're very fanatical about their views, and so they tend to dismiss anything that's not in their view. Just dismiss it and try to make it sound ridiculous and absurd and and um and it's just not a it's not an ingen it's it's disingenuous way to address the issue because uh you have to address each passage and prove whether you believe it referred to the past or the future. You can't just say, you can't just speak in these generic terms of like, you know, oh, yeah, that's a preterist. You just believe everything's in the past. Like, no, no, that's not that's not the case. And, uh, and by the same token, you could say, well, you, you can't just say, oh, you're, a, you're just a futurist. You wipe away everything and and think that it happens. If you, no, you've got to look at each passage or each concept in context and discern uh, biblically, uh, you know, when was it fulfilled? So sorry, go ahead
1: yeah no so that kind of ties into talking about what is the tribulation how do we know the tribulation will last seven years and was the tribulation in the past was it fulfilled in with like 70 a.d with the destruction of the temple or is it something that's going to happen in the future what do you tend to think about that
0: okay. So yes. The, so the tri- great tribulation is, is, um, another, you know, key focus of difference of interpretations. And the notion is, is that, you know, you get this from several passages, but in particular, Matthew 24, 21 for Jesus is talking about, uh, something that was going to be coming. And he says, there will be great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world, nor shall it ever be. And, um, uh, and in Luke, he adds, they, uh, there will be great distress upon the land of Israel, and wrath to this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword. They will be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled." So, this is one of these. This is one of the key passages to talk about the great tribulation. So, it's supposed to be this time of great tribulation for God's people to some degree, um, and some believe it's upon the earth. It's on the whole earth, right? And so that's the question is to who is it who's suffering and, and when does this occur? So you have to, you know, uh, look at other passages to learn, you know, well, first of all, in context of, of Matthew, <laughs> Matthew 24, the, you know, the, the biggest problem, I won't go into a, an exegesis of the whole passage, but, but just to, to, um, to, uh, Set one example of why context is so important. You just you look at that passage. You say, oh, this is a great tribulation it will never be. blah, blah, blah. But then, what is the context? Jesus, when he gives, when he begins his discussion of this very issue, he says, "Truly, I say to you, all these things that he's about to talk about will come upon this generation." And then, at the end, later at the end of his sermon on. On, on the Olivet Discourse, he ends with a very similar saying where he says, For, uh, where does he say, Matthew 24, 34. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So it's like bookends. He's saying, all these things I'm going to talk about will happen to this generation. And and this generation is not going to pass away. In other words, and then what does that mean? Well, if you look at, you look, you study the word, the phrase, this generation in Matthew, let alone the whole New Testament, but particularly matthew many many references he's clearly speaking to the people of his generation who rejected messiah and the context is is they were the generation that rejects messiah so they're going to be judged right so when he's saying this generation he's not talking about this race of jews that doesn't the w- greek word doesn't mean that <clears throat> and it doesn't mean like um this people this people who who will see these things take place. Well, yeah, these people will see these things take place, but he's speaking to this generation and he keeps telling the people in the sermon, you, you will see this, you will see that he's talking to them, not to us. And so that's the context. Therefore, now, when you, when you go to interpret everything within that, that sermon of Jesus, you have to understand it. Then how was it fulfilled within that generation generations roughly about 40 years, Right was the wicked generation that was in the wilderness because of lack of faith. That was about 40 years in the wilderness. So Jesus is likening this wicked generation reject Messiah is like that wicked generation. Right. And so within 40 years, this is going to happen. The other context is he says, you know, truly I say to you in Matthew 24 verse one, uh, uh, do you not see all these beautiful you know he was walking around the temple and these are beautiful temple and he says do you not see uh, not one of these stones will be left upon another that will not be thrown down and he says you know um your house is left to you desolate the house is the word for that they use for the temple and so he's prophesying the destruction of the temple very specifically related to their rejection of messiah So this temple destruction and the city of Jerusalem is going to be destroyed within this generation, within about 40 years. And sure enough, that happened. So now when you look at all the details of the passage, you can't take, you know, this is why people can't say, well, I look at that tribulation and it obviously looks like it hasn't occurred yet. No, you have to say, well, everything with that passage should be interpreted within those, those strictures that Jesus himself gave us, the hermeneutic. He said All these things must be interpreted as occurring in this generation. So when you look at that, well, what what was something that occurred that was so spiritually important that it would be, nothing would be greater than it. Well, guess what? The temple was destroyed, which was the whole emblem of the old, the whole incarnation of the old covenant was destroyed in AD 70 within generation, just like Jesus said, and that embodied the heavens and the earth of Israel, meaning the covenantal cosmic world was destroyed in that destruction of that old temple is, uh, of Israel. Right. And Jerusalem was also destroyed and taken away captive. So, yeah, that was the greatest tribulation, you know, of, of all to happen of all time. Why? Because it was the ultimate decimation of the entire old covenant and it was replaced with the new covenant, but that devastation, there's nothing greater than the devastation of a covenant of God, you know? And so that's the the context and the meaning of that great tribulation. And, you know, there's other, you know, one of the, one of the most, I'll just do one other verse, you know, that, like I said, the danger of hopping around, but nonetheless, it's, it's, it's inevitable. It's inescapable. It's kind of funny because the the apostle John is writing revelation and he says in first in chapter one, verse nine, I, John, your brother writing to these people and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom uh, on on the Island of Patmos. So he literally saying, I am your partner in the tribulation, which was occurring in his, in his day. So this is the time of Nero when he's uh, you know, Nero is like, uh, what was he um 61 or something like that until until he died in like 68 something like that and um so nero's persecuting the christians at that time and also the jews were persecuting the christians as well and then they got rome to join in with them so so this tribulation is in the bible says it was happening in the days of john and so um, now there are other issues that people will have to bring up. And you'll have to address There's Everything's complex, but there's answers for everything. Trust me, you just got patience and you got to seek out other viewpoints. And, and the, the idea there is that, um, you know, people say, yeah, but the book of revelation wasn't written until 95 AD. That was way after the destruction of the temple. Actually, that's not true. There's um, the, the evidence is not solid on either side, but there is good evidence a lot of good evidence that evidence that actually the book of revelation was written around the sixties in this mid sixties. And there are whole scholarly books on it. A.T. Robertson, Robertson, um, who is a liberal scholar, but he wrote that all the books in the new Testament, including revelation were written before the destruction of the temple. So there is scholarly, there is scholarly arguments and proof for or evidence. We don't know for sure on either side. We don't have anything perfectly solid. So if you're going to be honest, you're going to have to acknowledge these things. And so that's one example of how the tribulation, how I interpret the tribulation. Um, many people who assume that Matthew 24 is in the future, right? Well, then they, 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 they're going to believe that Well, this is in the future because Jesus doesn't say this is about the second coming. And these are assumptions that they bring to the text. And my argument would be if we look at each component within Matthew 24, for example, I can show you how biblically there is precedent for every one of the images, whether it's abomination of desolation, whether it's coming on the clouds, whether it's um, like a thief in the night, all these elements that Jesus refers to, there are precedents usage of that language in the old Testament. And the key, my argument is going to be the key to understanding Bible prophecy in the new Testament is to, to find out What are the Old Testament precedents? Because almost everything in the New Testament, prophetic wise, uses imagery that was already used by the prophets in the past. Sometimes they're even quoting or using the same themes as prior prophets like Isaiah or whatever. They're drawing from those, those motifs, those images, right? And so if you want to understand each of these elements, you've got to, you've got to understand them in context, not only of the passage, but also of their the tradition of Old Testament prophets, which is where they get the imagery from.
1: My next question kind of builds off of everything that you've just said. Is there a fictional series that anyone has written that might walk us through some of what you've talked about? Maybe even putting us in the story of John on Patmos and the destruction <laughs> of the temple. And what what it a might good have, guy! What it like might you
0: like. <laughs> You know, this is one of the problems of me discussing this. I'm, I'm like, you know. Uh the dominant almost everybody talking about Bible prophets these days are these are these futurists. And so they're they'll just, you know, people hear it over and over again. I'd rather just talk about my view and show you why my view works, but because I don't really um I don't believe in these other views anymore. And and they, everyone always, always hears the one side they don't hear the other side and it's my contention that we you need to listen to all sides and 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 listen to all of them even the ones that disagree with me i'm not saying you know right. but my view is the minority and so you need to you need to open up and listen more and i don't want to be talking about what they believe because i i just don't see there's much substance to it however um what you just said is thank you for the plug for my ser- my book series. So I've written a novel series, four novels called Chronicles of the Apocalypse. And what I did was I call it the origin story of the Book of Revelation. In other words, I try to tell the story in the first century of what it may, what it may have looked like with Nero persecuting the Christians, Paul and Peter getting um, uh, martyred, uh, and what the church was like hiding out from from the persecution. You know, just sort of the real world picture of that day but I also bring in the supernatural component of the divine council and, and um, you know, the gods of the nations, et cetera, which I draw from my other uh, series, but I incorporate those into a storyline. That's very, you know, big Epic romance action, demons and angels, all that kind of stuff. And my goal is, is to try to say, well, here's how I think maybe the first century Christians might've understood revelation as applying to themselves. And, I've had many people who read the series and say, well, I don't necessarily agree with his theology and, or his eschatology, but I've really loved it. And I enjoyed how he was able to, to uh, sort of put flesh on the bones of the theory, because yeah, we can talk abstractly about, and, and even exegetically, which is, I love, but, but I also understand a lot of times, a lot of this stuff is just so complex and goes over people's heads, but you can really absorb it through a good story, through a good narrative. And that's why I wrote Chronicles of the Apocalypse. No, I did not write it to mimic left behind Chronicles of the Apocalypse is actually the conclusion of my prior series called Chronicles of the Nephilim. It all is connected because it's all one theology. Um, but I but it was an exciting opportunity to uh, do something that's very truly original and almost nobody else has done Um uh, maybe one other person, one or two other people have tried it, but no one's done it on the level that I have where it's become a, a sort of a popular, uh, a popular novel, you know, uh, for, for I mean, nowhere near the popularity of the end times novels that everyone else is writing. Trust me, I'm not writing that. You know, I've, I've had people say, oh, you're why don't you just give it, give it, give out the word of God for free in your novels. Why are you charging for it? You know, um, you're just after the money. It's like, trust me, I, I wouldn't write this viewpoint if i wanted to make money because it's not a big <laughs> money maker um however there is a big big money in the what i call the prophecy industrial complex and what that is is this 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 general notion of and it every every decade and every generation thinks we are the trojan generation right we are that generation jesus spoke of we're special we're important to god everything's going to happen to us so every generation, they tend to interpret all these prophecies. Oh, Ezekiel's Russia, and then it's China, then it's Islam, this, this, and that. And it changes every decade, if not every 30 or 40, uh, if not every generation, right? And they're always wrong, always wrong. And if the, you think, and the guys today are saying, oh, but now we're right. No, they they had it wrong, but, they, but, but we got it right now. You know, well, okay, that's logically possible, but it's not likely because if you look at the last hundred years, they're saying the same things, using the same passages, applying it to their day. Why is that wrong? Why is that bad? Because it was not intended to be applied to their day. If you look at what Jesus said, he said, this generation who he was speaking to, not another generation, not a future generation, the generation of people that he was speaking to that some wouldn't even die before this stuff happened. And so, so um, what I'm getting at is, is when you're, when you, you, you build these systems on where that generation. So then we're special and it's all about Christian conspiracy theorizing. It's just a conspiracy theory. It's like, look at all this. I'm connecting all these dots and, and, you know, this is Russia and this is that, and this is China and all this. And it, it, it continues to prove to be wrong, but also it breeds people love doom and gloom and they really do and it, it and it makes you feel like you're alive because you are seeing evil great evil in the world that that we're supposed to stand against in some way or pray against or something or wait to have Jesus delivered us from the evil <laughs> instead of doing something right so there's all these components I think that go into the psycho- psychologizing of end times that makes it an industrial complex of big money-making people love to be threatened. They love to love fear. They're drawn to it because it makes you feel alive. This is real. This is evil. And we are special to God. And all along, that's not what the text is saying. And, 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 you know um, the the Matthew 24 is just a good example, but the same could be said of revelation. If you go through a study of the revelation, many people just assume that it has to do with our future. And um, my argument would be, if you look at it closely, and I've done teachings on going through the whole book of Revelation, um, uh, you go through it, you see, no, it's it's rooted in the first century fulfillment.
1: Meanwhile, at the production studio. Tori, do you have a minute to talk?
2: Well, yes, Chris, I absolutely do. In fact, there is nothing I'd like more than to take exactly 60 seconds and talk with you.
1: Let's talk over there. Tori, I'm really concerned about our writing staff.
2: Yeah, you look concerned. And might I say, that's a whole lot of sweat coming off you, Chris.
1: I know, Tori. It's the sweat of concern. This is a serious matter.
2: I'm listening, Chris.
1: Tori, you know the writers are going to make us say absolutely crazy things for Camp Ramon.
2: Yeah, I've suspected this for a while now.
1: What if they make us sound like we're one semi-short of a full convoy, or like we're walking around with only one sock
2: thinking it's totally normal or okay? Or one cup of sugar short of a cookie dough batch?
1: Tori, you really get me.
2: Well, Chris, don't worry, I'll protect you.
1: Thank you, Tori, but how? How will you protect me?
2: By using this flaming sword I purchased off Wish.com? It even came with free shipping! Ow! Well, don't touch it, Chris. It's a flaming sword.
1: First, this sword is really neato. And second, I feel safer already.
2: That's great, Chris. And remember the most important thing that will keep the sweat of concern off your brow of pooling.
1: What's that, Tori? That
2: the writers will somehow sneak in the fact that Camp Hermann has really affordable memberships that will go towards monthly documentaries, extra super secret podcasts,
1: and a store with merch, Kevlar Joe's coffee like the Bigfoot blend, and you'll be able to see these at CampHermann.com. By the way, thanks for praying for me. You know how much I love coffee now.
2: And don't forget that Camp Hermann has sweet soap to wash away all that sweat residue.
1: Judd's musk is my favorite soap. It's so wonderful that I get to smell like Judd every day, all day.
2: We really are fortunate, Chris. Also, you might sweat a little bit less if you remove that super cozy Camperman hoodie, too.
1: Great cheeseburger with fries. You're right. Tori, you're a good friend.
2: Chris, you're the best. Now let's get back with the group before they notice that we've been gone. Enoch thinks that... Everything he says is super important, so we need to look like we're at least paying attention.
1: I think it's that handsome face he has. He's just used to people staring at him, blankly, in wonder. Um, so when the white Freemasons came up to the Tower of the Black Freemasons, they had a big argument and the leader of the Black Freemasons.
2: Oh, he's still on the same topic. The leader of good. His plot's paced
1: like a soap opera, but in podcast form. Chris and Tori, do you have something you wish to share with the class? <laughs> <laughs> indubitably, Enoch. Indubitably, <laughs> I've read all of you know I'm I, I'm not I'm not joking when I say you're one of my favorite authors I read all of the chronicles of the Nephilim and all of the chronicles of the apocalypse I think I read them all during the the first year of the the pandemic <laughs> the pandemic actually had a lot of yeah had a lot of time on my hands so for me I recommend them to to everyone that's that's kind of delved into this world of, you know, Dr. Heiser's work, Dr. Judd's work. Um, I recommend your books because for me, when I was first learning about the divine council worldview, I'm like trying to wrap my head around what does that look like? And so for me, I'm very like visual. And so yeah, I was able to read through the novels and just picture, okay, what could this have looked like? So with the, yeah, with the Chronicles of the Nephilim going back and then um, Chronicles of the Apocalypse, I I felt like you were just taking me through from like Genesis through Revelation and, and it was, it was awesome.
0: Well, that, by the way, that that was my intent was to bring the divine counsel um, view worldview alive in the stories of the Bible, because it transformed my understanding of all those stories as well. And it's not just it's it's a whole story itself. Right. And the culmination of that does. You know, and then the other thing was like Book of Revelation is a very supernatural book. Right. But it's highly symbolic. All right. Which is the danger of everything, because then you're going to have these multiple interpretations. But nonetheless, I I saw how that supernatural notion is the one that a lot of Christians are afraid to address or the ones who do embrace it interpret this symbolism as being, well, that has not been, obviously not been fulfilled yet because it's so dramatic and so extreme. They don't think through the eyes of an ancient Hebrew who's using this symbolism to mean something very spiritual, but also something covenantal. And so in a very real sense, it's like, this is the perfect connection the the world divine world council with this understanding of revelation being fulfilled in that first century being focused on the not the end of the earth but the end of the land of israel the end of the old covenant israel and the the uh the divorce of israel as ken gentry puts in his new uh revelation commentary coming out um and and the marriage of the new of to the bride of christ right which is in revelation and so um uh, uh yeah, so 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 it's all connected, and it was the best way that I felt I could embody all this theology that I've studied, but I understand what you're saying. most people don't get into the complexities of theology, and I understand that. And I think a good narrative can communicate uh, uh, a, a belief system in a very primal way that you can't always do so with just reasoned arguments, which is why left behind was so powerful, even though I think it was horrible, horrible theology, completely false, but it was very influential because it was, you know, they told a good yarn, told a good story. And that brought that theology to life for people rather than the stodgy, you know, theology books, right. That kind of thing. Sure.
1: Yeah. So, I think a natural question to anyone who's listening and they're saying, okay, you're saying the great tribulation was in 70 AD with the destruction of the temple. A lot of these things have already come to pass, right? What's, what's the future look like as far as revelation and what, what hasn't um, come true as far as in times prophecy. Sure.
2: Yeah. That's my question too. Like, if it happened in the past and it very well could have, um, yeah. Like where are we now? What, what's like next for believers? Sure. Yeah.
0: No, that's a very good question. Because, you know, here's why, here's why that's an important question, because I went through that struggle myself when I was, I, I was raised on how Lindsey and I believed in premillennialism and it was all exciting. And then when I began to see, again, not just the arguments, but the biblical arguments for this viewpoint that, Uh, For example, Matthew 24 was in the first century. Revelation is relative to the first century. It was so shocking to me. I thought it was heresy and I've been called a heretic now. People think it's heresy now, which is very irresponsible, but nevertheless. um, um, And then when I began to see the arguments, oh yeah, they are rooted in old. When you understand the old Testament precedent, then it makes more sense related to them, not to us. Then you, you, you you you're uprooting a whole system that's based on, I have this hope and this hope is we are a special generation. Our specialness is rooted in that we're going to be raptured out of here because Jesus is going to come for us. And, um, uh, and there's going to be this antichrist that rises up and there's going to be a great tribulation. So all the bad things, you know, and you're looking forward to this stuff. Well, when you realize, well, that's not prophesied for us, that all the stuff that you think that's related to was something that did happen in the first century. Then you start to think, well, what do I have to look forward to? What there's nothing. It's like you've taken away the hope, but when you study it biblically, the hope is the resurrection. It's salvation in Christ. Our hope is the resurrection. And, um, it's not in the antichrist coming. It's not in being raptured, right? It's not in the seven year tribulation. And so, um, And our hope is rooted in, in salvation in Christ. But, um, so, oh, so, so there are, it's important to understand that, that if you believe that a lot of these last days passages are not the last days of our earth, but they were the last days of the old covenant, which is very easily proven from the scripture last days is, is last days of the old covenant age. Um, then there are several different options. The option as I see it, the best option from what I've seen is understanding that this, is, so this is the story that I draw from the text and then I bring to the text, right? Uh, Daniel says Israel is in exile. It's under the, Foreign powers of Gentile, godless nations, beasts, right? First Babylon, then Medo-Persia, then Greece, then Rome. And then during the days of Rome, the Messiah, who's the rock cut without hands, hits the statue, crushes the kingdoms of man, right? And then it says it grows to be a mountain to fill the earth. Jesus said that the kingdom of God begins like a small sust- mustard seed, but it be- grows to fill the whole garden, become the biggest tree in the garden. It says that, that it starts with like a leaven in a little lump of, in a lump of dough. And then it soon leavens the whole dough. So the concept there, the kingdom concept is when Messiah comes and establishes his kingdom, which he did in the first century, Jesus is enthroned as King. His kingdom is here, is now behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst, right? So his kingdom is here and it will grow to fill the earth. So the idea is, is that, that the establishment of God's kingdom is rooted in the destruction of the old covenant, the establishment of the new covenant kingdom with the, the kingdom of Christ, the Messiah, Jesus. He is now King overall. And then there's lots of components to this story, of course, but, but then, um, then he, what does he tell us? Disciple the nations. So that's our calling. That's that's the exciting calling of being Christians. Our calling isn't to sit and wait to, to hope to be raptured. You know, our calling is to go and make disciples of all the nations. Why? Because Messiah has conquered the power, principalities and powers. And now all, all tribes and all uh, tongues of people can come to Christ through faith in Christ can come to the kingdom of God. So that's our message. We, and we're to, not just to evangelize, but to disciple the nations, because as we teach people to obey Christ, their lives uh, become, um, uh, more in line with, with God's will. And then as groups of them become larger and, and that community grows, that becomes a major influence on the earth until it grows to fill the earth. So the kingdom of God is growing to become a victorious kingdom that will outlast all other kingdoms. That's what Daniel says. Right. And so, and that all begins in the first century with the coming of Messiah. And so we are in that Time period of the growth of the kingdom of God. And there are ups and downs in history. Yes, I know we had Hitler, but then we won World War II, right? And so there is going to be, there's going to be, you know, ups and downs in history. But if you look back, would you rather be living 150 years ago where you didn't have dentistry, you didn't have health, you didn't have, you know, I mean, all kinds of oppressions, you know, even slavery, right? So it's like a lot of stuff has been done away with, but even then it's, it's been done away in pockets. So it still has room to grow. God's kingdom still has to grow on the earth. So that's the exciting um, biblical picture of the kingdom of God that we are a part of greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world rather than uh, sit back and point out all the evil because the church is going to lose. And that's what most futurists believe. The church is going to lose because the antichrist is going to take over uh some of them believe we'll be whisked out of here some of them believe we're going to go through the tribulation but nonetheless the church will not be victorious on on earth and that's why we're looking forward to the the pointing out the evil and hopefully jesus will rapture us away so we don't have to deal with it or um you know we're going to go through this great tribulation and we're going to you know uh, see the antichrist they're looking more for the christ than the anti- i mean they're looking more for the antichrist than for christ himself So those are the two, those are the two dominant pictures. There's many varieties within those, but those are the two dominant narratives. Either Christ's kingdom is going to be victorious over the earth over a long period of time with ups and downs, or the church is going to be a failure and Christ is going to come back and have to rescue us. And so uh, now those aren't, you know, both sides would argue that these, these are in these components of the narratives are in scripture. Again that's where we just have to sit down and look at these passages passages one by one and say is that is that what the text says you know So is it's almost like before we, you know, this has to be a series or it's almost like before you can really talk about all these things, like what's the rapture and what's the great tribulation. It's like, you have to talk about the hermeneutic because it's, it's the way you're approaching scripture itself that can det- predetermine how you're going to interpret something. And, you know, like I said, if you're interpreting these verses, uh, you know, it's key verses to refer to something that is its opposite, you're going to come to an opposite conclusion, aren't you? So you got to make sure how do you approach the text? And I don't mean to beat a dead horse, but, and in some ways, it's kind of like the most generic thing, but in a way, it's the most foundational. And that is, we must stop coming to read the New Testament Bible as if it was written to us. It was not written to us, it was written to the ancient Jews and Christians in the first century and before. And therefore, it must be understood within context of how they understood all these symbols and and, and just imagery and even a lot of the words that we don't even understand. Um, We have to interpret within their cultural context, which is both ancient Hebrew and ancient Near Eastern. And that is the way by which we must interpret these passages, not come at them and just think they uh, hyper-literally you know, stars are falling from the sky. Okay. Stars, you know, stars must fall in the sky and the moon turned to blood. Uh, so that, that hasn't happened yet. So that's obviously literal. Well, no, it's obviously literal. If you are a modern Western person biased with, uh, um, post enlightenment scientific reasoning, that materialistic reasoning, even though you're Christian, even though we're Christians, we're still heavily influenced by this, uh, this, uh, a attempt to read literature as if it's literal when it literal in our terms rather than in their terms. And so that's the impo, that's the imposition that unconscious bias that we bring when we're just coming at the text and reading the pl- plain text of scripture. No, you have to understand the plain text of scripture as they understood it. So forgive me for waxing on about that general hermeneutic, but that's going to be the key to Proper interpretation of each of these little components.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, we've got to look at the historical context, the literary context, like context is important. Otherwise, we can. We can make it say whatever we want it to say. Yeah. And I've heard Dr. Jed talk about torturing. If you torture scripture enough, you can make it say whatever you want it to say. And you could come to whatever conclusion that you want if you just take it out of context. And people do that all the time. And so we want to be we want to be honest. It may I mean, I say it may not be as sexy, but I think it's still I think it's still sexy. And if you were offering to do a series with us, the answer is yes, absolutely. (laughs) We would we would love to. Um,
0: Well, by the way, I, I just want to argue that it is sexier to to so to speak, to to interpret the text through their ancient eyes, because that's where you that's where. The whole dike opens up. That's where the whole portal, the 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 Narnian wardrobe opens up. When you start to understand these, these literary language, these symbols in their context, classic example, you know, I mentioned the sun, the moon, stars already, you know, that's a classic, you call it collapsing universe imagery, right? The sun, the moon, you know, the sun's dark and the moon loses its light. The stars fall from sky, the powers of the heavens shaken, this, this is a very common motif it, throughout all of the Old Testament. And these, this phraseology is often used of actual historical incidents in the Old Testament, referring to the fall of Babylon, the fall of Assyria, and the fall of Jerusalem in 586 BC, right? That same language. In fact, Jesus is quoting from Isaiah, right? And so so that's the language they use to describe historic fallings of nations or tribes or peoples or cities so much so and this is where the divine council comes in in the ancient world they believed that earthly powers were were connected to heavenly powers and so when there was a war on earth there's a war in heaven because you know there's these territorial powers over over earthly powers right and so um that's why they're talking about the sun moon and the stars those those represent the divinities and and those are the stars are were considered divine and so and connected to angels in some way right and so when when they're describing the fall of a city they're saying the stars are falling for the right because the heavenly powers are falling as well as the earthly powers this is the language they use when you then understand their context Oh, all of a sudden, like all of our modern physics is just ridiculous. gaseous balls and of fire of hydrogen you know in in a galaxy of stars. that's nothing to do with with what the text is talking about, right? And you can step through each of these components and see that same concept of 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 ancient contextual symbolism.
1: And I think another reason why this I'll just call it partial preterist view. We went over what, what that means earlier is sexy because like you described, it's a victorious church as opposed to, you know, you mentioned earlier a church that just loses and is just getting beat up so bad that Jesus has to come back and rest, rescue us. And this, scriptural warrior ethos comes to mind that I would rather operate under the belief that the church is going to be victorious and Jesus is coming back in victory. And I'll just recite some of these. I'd rather, I'd rather live with this mindset Praise be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. For you are my loving God and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer. Though a thousand fall at my side, ten thousand at my right hand, it will not come near me. For the weapons of my warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God for the pulling down of strongholds. I cast down arguments and every high thing that would exalt itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. I'd rather operate Amen. Amen. That's great. From a place of being a warrior, fight, you know, fighting that battle, go therefore and make disciples, you know, that being our our kind of our field of battle is where where we live, where we work, um, and just ministering ministering the gospel and seeing the kingdom advance. So another thing that I would like to ask you about. What do you think about like a coming like one world government, like the New World Order, Illuminati and how all of that kind of stuff plays into this in times view that we've been discussing? Because the the futurist side, I think, would say like it's all it's all. That's coming proof. to a head yeah exactly yeah. that's this is proof all this stuff that's that's happening that things are you know getting bad the uh, an alien dis- deception and just all these different things how do the? what do those things kind of fall in with this view that we've been discussing
0: yeah my general my general approach to that is to get force people to realize how myopic we are how 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 um, <laughs> culturally narcissistic we are that we interpret the whole world through our experience and our you know we think uh, like I said you know we think we're the last generation we're so special and all this kind of stuff and um, because if you pull back from history you see look I mean I, I'm I'm not going to deny yeah I do think that you know there are totalitarian powers like China and and world I believe people are seeking to do world government and control us and and such and. And but see that's always been the case. In fact, there's been the case where the the whole world was under <laughs> under uh, totalitarian powers. You know, like Rome, try Rome and Babylon, which is re- really what the Bible is writing to, right? And so we've been there before. And and, and it, understanding that, the, yeah, this is part of the cycle of human nature because man is sinful and evil. So man will always seek to be a Nimrod, a, a tyrant, right? And so this isn't anything new. Um, and there have been times in history where evil was, you know, pretty supreme over the, over the earth or the known world at the time. Right. Um, and, but we've conquered it, you know, like I say, you know, everyone says, Oh, you know, uh, World War II crushed the, crushed the that belief that the king, you know, kingdom of God is going to victorious be victorious on the earth. It did. Well, guess what? We won World War II and we saved the world, <laughs> you know? So it's like, uh, yeah, it was a bad time, and there was much suffering and and there will be much suffering as long as there's you know sinful humanity, et cetera. Um, but I think what you're saying is is to the point that if you pull back and look a little bit more broader, you'll realize that we've been here before and we can fight it. And it, it's not even to say that, that we'll win at this point in history, we will ultimately, but we can't Kind of, And the other thing is, is just what's happening in America is not what's happening in many other countries. Right. And so there's that whole picture too, that people think it's getting so bad in America with transgender rights and all this stuff. And like, yeah, well, you know, there are a lot worse places and a lot better places around the earth. So we gotta be stopping myopic and just sort of see the bigger picture and realize that, that this is just the same bestial tyranny that Daniel talked about. It's not a fulfillment of a specific prophecy. It's just the reiteration of the same human nature. So we have to fight it the same way. And so I often tell, you know, I do have some friends who are futurists and, um, and and I tell them, look, you know, I, I'll fight with the I'll fight with you against the evil for sure, unless you're just going to sit back and wait for the rapture. But uh, <laughs> but I'm like, you know, let's fight this evil. Let's fight global t- uh, governance. Let's uh, fight uh, you know, chips in the hands. I don't think that getting chips in our hands or foreheads is a fulfillment of the six, six, six prophecy but I still believe it's evil and they're trying to control us. But so my point is, is do, did the people in Mao's China, did, were they discouraged to discover that? No, that wasn't prophesied. There wasn't, that wasn't prophecy. Were the people under Hitler slaughtered under Hitler were the people under, you know, just name the tyrannies all through history to discover that all the millions of lives lost, they weren't prophesied. Right they thought this was fulfillment prophecy, but it wasn't, which means there were just millions of people dying under the hands of tyrants, which is not prophetic fulfillment, but that doesn't mean we're this doesn't mean we should let evil you know grain or well, therefore it's not evil, no we're not saying it's not evil, we're just saying it's not prophetic fulfillment, so I will fight with you against I will fight with the futurist against the uh computer chips, not because it's the mark of the beast. In a way, it's a metaphor of the mark of the beast, sure, but it's not a specific prophecy fulfillment. It's just the things that tyrants do that we must fight all tyranny, period. We must give our lives to fight tyranny. So we have that union of what we're against, but I guess the difference is just that, um, you know, they, they feel content in their Christian conspiracy theories, thinking that they're putting the connecting the dots of what's going on as if it's connected to scripture when it isn't. Yeah, it it does. And it will be proven to not be by the way in the next 20 years, as it always is. Right. I mean, listen, I was around in the eighties as a Christian, when they're saying the big Hal Lindsey thing, the big Chuck Smith and Calvary chapel, it's all like the eighties are it man. You know, within a generation there is that misinterpretation within a generation of what, of what, the fig tree, that must be Israel becoming a nation. So Israel becoming a nation in 1948. So a generation is 40 years. So then by 1988, we're going to get raptured. Chuck Smith, which by the way, I love that movie that's out, Jesus Revolution. Go see it. Um, and God uses broken vessels and God uses me. I'm a broken vessel. So uh, you don't have to be perfect to be used by God. But um, that was, uh, oh, I got off. I, oh, crud, I got sidetracked on that. Why, why did I say that? Um. um uh, 1988 oh yeah thank you thank you <laughs> so we're all you know he was saying you know christ is probably going to become coming by 1988 you know and he, there was a guy who wrote a book you know uh 88 reasons why christ Were Returned in 88 and it was all rooted in this thing and and they were so sure of it and of course it never happened and then you know and each generation, now the new prophecy doomsayers, uh, the uh, prophecy, industrial complex, they like to use questions and uh, um, what's the word sort of like uh, implications like could this be the mark of the beast? Could this be, they don't come out and say it because they've been wrong all the time, every time. So now they just say, well, I'm just suggesting, could this be, could that be, could this be this? Because they're trying to avoid responsibility. But then you got some guys like this John Hagee guy. He'll just come right out and say, you know, yeah, the blood moons. Yeah, that's it. It's within the next few years, the rapture and the tribulation. It's like, that's already like what that was like. 2014, it was, was his big prophecy about the, the end coming, and it didn't, did it? And he's a false prophet by definition, and yet he still has a ministry, and people are still giving him millions of dollars. And that's a really, really sad statement about what is going on. We have a church full of false prophets making all these, these, these Christian conspiracy theories about the end times, and when none of it happens, none of them will be accountable. They should all be uh, disbarred from 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 for saying all these things, because in the Bible, in the Old Testament, if a false prophet who prophesied something and if it did not come to pass, they would be executed. Well, now in the New Testament, we don't execute false prophets, but we excommunicate them. So we should be excommunicating all these guys. We're making all God told me this, and God told me that I've heard it in all these the half of these these uh, prophecy you know uh, nuts, and. Um, I don't mean to be derogatory, sorry, the prophecy pundits, prophecy pundits. But my point is, is that, you know, um, they're always been wrong and they're never accountable. And they keep being given uh, a soapbox when they should be excommunicated from their churches. That's my little sermonette for today.
2: I agree. I agree. Where's the accountability? I mean, because the Bible says that, like, yeah, we're not going to stone you anymore. But if you claim to be a prophet and then it doesn't come true, like, Oh, I guess you're not a
0: prophet. So anyway, like, yeah. you know, yeah. Yeah. Oh, and well, look at Hal Lindsay, I mean, he's still around. I mean, he's not as big, obviously he's old man now and uh, we tend to worship youth, but none, we've moved on to the younger guys, you know, except some old guys are still around, I guess. But anyway, my point is, is I remember Hal Lindsay had actually said that, like, you know, back in the eighties they're like, well, what if you're wrong? Or back in the seventies, what if you're wrong? And what if he turns out to be wrong? And he goes, well, I guess there's a split second split seconds difference between, being right and being a bum and if i'm wrong then i'm i'm just a bum of course he was wrong but he still has a ministry doesn't he because he should be a bum on the street for all the damage he's done to people's lives with these false hopes um and people have given up their faith for this stuff because when you root it so you root this end times beliefs that this is proof that god is real and that the gospel and blah 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 you know and and it's like everything's rooted in this and we're in the end times. Well, when it doesn't happen, what happens to those people? Well, they throw out the whole system. It's like, well, then your Christianity is false because why? Because you falsely made your end times uh, eschatology be your defining character of your faith and your message to the world, rather than the gospel message. Your message is it's the end times. Right. And you think, you know, what would people getting saved? Cause they're getting scared in the kingdom. Right. They're realizing that God's going to judge them. And I was there in the seventies and eighties when that happened. And I felt that same sense of urgency, uh, but that doesn't justify the, a lie. That doesn't justify falsehoods. Right. So um, uh, and not only that, but if you're rooting your uh, salvation in this, terror of imminent judgment alone then when it doesn't occur you tend to a lot of people have been throwing out their whole faith with with it right so that's the among the many dangers of the false prophets that are uh, now in the church
2: yeah i think i don't know um I'm I'm not fully willing to surrender to the camp of like, it definitely all happened in the past yet, you know, but, but I know what you're saying. And I think, I think there's a healthy way, you know, even for anyone who's listening to not treat like the future belief as, as an excuse to kind of do like bus stop Christianity where it's like your entire life and your faith is like waiting at this bus stop, like, okay, like, Best coming any minute, you know. It's like, no, we should use it as like eager anticipation that Christ is coming soon. As like, like we're, I mean, if He's coming or if whatever's going to happen, you know, like sure, I don't know, like eager anticipation. I think not, not laziness and sitting back and waiting. You know, I
0: agree. I agree. There's, a, there's um, all of these versions have their own, um, you know, um, fair interpretation you know, within evangelical, because look, I, I may be wrong too. Right. I mean, like, I, I don't think I have the absolute truth. So we must all be humble enough. And the problem is though, is when it becomes the all consuming, because I know a lot, I've seen a lot, this is they're all consuming a lot of these prophet pundits, prophecy pundits. It's their all consuming uh, life. They're making a living off of it. They're doing everything based and rooted in it. And that's the extreme that I think is, is cause danger, but you're, you're fair to, 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 uh, to bring up that, that concept, you know, um, I, and I think you're right because there's always extremes on, on, on every side. And that doesn't mean everything should there. That doesn't mean you can't come up with a moderate understanding that gives you a theological, um, you know, rootedness, you know, for example, um, you know, uh, if you believe that Christ is coming very, very soon, then you're not, you're not as likely to get involved in making the world a better place because it's going to go to hell in a handbasket, right? So why try, why polish the the brass on a sinking ship, right? Um, And there's a logic to that, right? And so that can be damaging to many uh, to the, to the kingdom of God, because Christians won't be as likely to, uh, based on that premise you're not as likely to get engaged in the cultural reformation uh with the kingdom other than preaching your message of the end times and and such but uh, But that doesn't mean that none of them do. There are plenty of them who are involved in fighting abortion, fighting for, you know, uh, against the evil that's in the world. So there are some who do. But you have to acknowledge and understand that whatever you whatever your theology is or your eschatology of the future is going to determine by and large how you behave in the present. And and that's the danger that we have to. We have to be careful of, and yeah, sure. So like if there's someone and there's a danger of the extreme of the other side, people who tend to believe that it's all been fulfilled and there's no more future left to be fulfilled prophecy. Uh, yeah, they can tend to be, uh, people who don't do much of anything, right? Cause it's all been done. So there's nothing left for us to do. They can have that, that extreme, but that, you know, so we have to find, we have to focus on what is the truth and seek that more than anything. For sure. It's
2: so funny, and I think everything you just said is so true. You know, like you know, there's you know maybe Christians don't want to polish the buckles on, um, whatever you just said was <laughs> it shoes or a book.
0: Polish the, polish the brass on a sinking ship.
2: Okay. I was thinking of shoe buckles. I'm sorry. Um, yeah. So when you started to say that though, I was thinking like, if you think Christ is coming back like any day or next week, you're probably not going to be as likely to. And then my mind filled in a blank, like go start selling math or something. Right. It's like, you're probably going to want to like be on your best behavior. Cause it's like, well, he might be coming back anytime, you know? So, but, um, either way I do not endorse getting chips in your hand or head, whatever, whatever situation that when you're talking about tyranny, um, I have this, it was like a little tattoo design that I drew and it's just sitting on my desk all the time, but it's that quote, rebellion, it's probably backwards to y'all, but rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God.
0: That's cool. That's yeah. So,
2: much. so whatever's going on with the rapture, you know, I'm. We're, we're rebelling against tyrants anyway.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's a misnomer for people to believe that if you don't believe the, the uh, chips in the hand is the, is the, the, um, uh, the, the mark of the beast, then, then you accept it. No, I don't accept it. <laughs> it's just not a prophecy fulfillment. It doesn't, have, something doesn't have to fulfill prophecy to be evil and to fight against it. That's the main, that's right. the main point.
2: Like just to be safe. I'm not going to do it either way.
0: But. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: The new, the new concept of the Mark of the Beast that I've been hearing about the last like year or two is some sort of like DNA upgrade.
0: Which is rooted in the vaccines, right? And of course, there's a reality to the fact that they are engaging in an attempt to control us, sterilize us through genetic manipulation. Absolutely. And that's evil and we should fight it. But it doesn't have to be prophecy fulfillment to do that,
1: (laughs) you know? Right. So, yeah. Okay. My next question is people talk about as in the days of Noah. And again, this is probably like a futurist view, but they think that there's going to be a Nephilim walking around. So, A, what do you think of that? And this kind of is related. What do you think about this idea that, there is a breeding program like UFO alien, like breeding program. And some people think that they're breeding like a Nephilim army for like Armageddon in times
0: battle. Yeah. I, I haven't heard anything like that. I mean, I, I my imagination has, but, um, but uh, so, yeah. So I actually wrote about this in my book, which you can buy at Amazon, called End Times Bible Prophecy. I do address that Noah passage because I happen to be in the camp that does believe that the Bible talks about Nephilim as giants and uh supernatural sons of God, mated with human women. And uh <clears throat> and that's the origin. And I believe there's a very theological purpose for all that. Um, and so people will often say, well, the coming, you know, again, it's Matthew 24, which again. You know, I think the text clearly says this is in the first century. Jesus himself said so. But nonetheless, um, he says that the, uh, what is it? It will be as in the days of Noah, where is that? Oh, there it is. Uh, 2437, for as in the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark and then the flood came, took them all away, right? So the idea there is that well, that Genesis six talks about the the sons of God marrying the daughters of men. So there's the marriage again. That's an illusion. Well, no, it doesn't talk about them marrying. Actually, it says that they took women for themselves, which is the implication is force. Number one, uh, it's not a it's not a marrying con. It's not a marrying context in, in Genesis six. And secondly, the context of what Jesus is saying, he's saying very explicitly what. What does he mean, days of Noah? In in what way? In what way? Well, they were they were eating, drinking, marrying until he entered the ark, meaning, eat, drink, marry, eat, drink, and be merry, right? That's the very concept of they're just living their normal lives, ignorant of the fact that this judgment was coming down upon them. That's the context of what he's saying. He's not alluding to to any Nephilim, he's drawing for a very specific um um connection to the lack of awareness of the judgment that was coming upon them. That's the point of the passage. Very clearly that context, you know. And then it's interesting too because um, there's another, here's a passage where it says, you know, they say that the, you know, the rapture is, right after that it says, um, two men will be in the field, one will be taken, one left. Two women grinding in the mill, one will be taken, one left. And they said, see that's the rapture. They, no, no, it's not a rapture actually. If you look at the origin of that passage, it's rooted in Jeremiah. When Jeremiah was talking about the Jews being taken away to Babylon in exile, judgment was coming upon them just like it came upon them in Israel, he was said that, that they will be taken away to judgment not to, not to be raptured. In other words, uh, so if you go to, let's see here, sorry. Jeremiah 6, 11 through 10, um, basically God is saying the same thing, he's saying, their houses will be turned to others, their fields and wives, I will stretch out my hand. Pour, um, uh, I'm sorry, uh, poured upon the children of the street and upon the gathering of young men also, both husband and wife shall be taken, the elderly and the very aged, their houses shall be turned over to others. So it's the same concept, but think about this. So he's saying, he's using the same imagery to describe the destruction of Jerusalem in Matthew 24, that jeremiah was using to describe the exile and destruction of jerusalem in 586 bc so he's saying that people will be taken away but think about this the taken away was taken away to judgment the people who stayed in jerusalem were not judged it's the people who were taken so when he's saying one taken one left that's not that's the opposite. The people who are taken are the ones who are judged, not the ones who are left, see? So that can't be the rapture, or what they think it implies, the rapture. And the other context there coming, is, come, isn't the coming of the Son of Man, isn't that the second coming? Well, this, this requires you know, a whole discussion, and, and if you wanna go down there, we can, but it, just the short of it is that the, the, the coming of the Son of Man in Matthew 24 is not a second coming in our future. It was a judgment coming of Christ upon Jerusalem and Israel for its rejection of Messiah. And the language he uses is the same language throughout the Old Testament of Yahweh coming on the clouds to judge cities, nations, and peoples. Jesus is coming on the clouds to judge Israel as well and the destruction of Jerusalem. And that's rooted in that Old Testament. Again, I write about all this in my book, End Times Bible Prophecy, which is exclusively at Amazon, but it is, a, it is my way of writing a little bit about the theology of of my own story of how I came to understand these, these Bible passages in a, in a new way that is the sort of foundation of the chronicles of the apocalypse which was my fictional my fictional story set in that first century
1: man looking at the literary and historical context will really ruin
0: uh <laughs> ruin <laughs> ruin our false, ruin hopes, false hopes, hopes and beliefs that's what i argue <laughs> see that's my whole thing it's a matter of you're not ruining the hope really yeah you're ruining no, the hope yeah. of a false system but that is the that's the general thing people think like well, if it's all been done, or if if everything you said there has been fulfilled, then we have nothing to look forward to. No, we do have a lot to look forward to. You know, we're a part of a massive kingdom. Jesus is king over the earth. We serve the living God. He is with us. He will do great things, greater things than than he did on when he was on this earth. You know, and and so it's like no, we're we're part of this kingdom that is growing to fill the earth, and that's an ex. The, the kingdom that, as Daniel said, or, or God Himself said, <laughs> that you know, it will crush all other kingdoms.
1: Right. Well, I like the way you put it when you said just because it's not some fulfillment of prophecy doesn't mean that we don't have tyranny and evil to fight against. It doesn't really change that at all.
0: No, no, because tyranny. By the way, I still refer. I still use biblical imagery as metaphors. That's the application, right? I, I use the beast imagery. I think the beast imagery begins in Daniel, right? The large, remember, you know, the, the large beasts come out of the sea and they're all these, you know, hybrid monsters and they were symbols of governments that were godless. So the Bible uses the, the concept of hybrid monsters and beasts to describe godless human governments and powers. So that's why it's no surprise in Revelation where he's describing... Rome, as the seven-headed dragon, Satan, but is also embodied in that the the, the sea beast. Um, it symbolizes that godless government. So I have no problem using that imagery, not as fulfillment of prophecy, but as yeah, this is this is we are we are under a beastly. Regime that seeks to displace God, just like Babylon did, just like the Medo-Persians, just like Rome, etc. So you know, this is why you can we draw applications from fulfilled prophecy. Um, they don't have to be unfulfilled for us to be able to draw from them, right? Um, in fact, that's the whole point of it. In the same way that it was fulfilled, now we see that's those are the kinds of things we seek. We seek to avoid allowing so that history doesn't happen again type of thing history doesn't repeat
1: right yeah no that's great and i think we still evil still exists we we're still uh fighting against um demons and principalities and powers and and all that kind of stuff so it's still yeah it's still exciting and to me like we talked about earlier knowing like we can operate from a place of victory, not from a place of fear and worry that we're going to just, we're going to, I don't want to say lose, because I think even futurists are like, I know, they know like we win in the end.
0: Right. But what? But the church what, will be a failure in history. That's the point. Right. The church will be a failure in history.
1: Right. Yeah, so, yeah, it's still super, super exciting. So, um, but um And by yeah, the way, so-
0: the, the positive view of the victory of the kingdom of God is scriptural. It's not cultural, right? What did we say? Daniel himself is the one that said it, a mountain that grows to fill the earth. When did it occur? Daniel said, in the days of these kings, which were the Medo-Persian, Greece, and Rome, all the ancient kingdoms, right? That's when the Messiah comes. It's not talking about the second coming. It's talking about the first coming. And that's when the mountain grows to fill the entire earth. That doesn't mean that we deny evil, that doesn't mean that, um, that there won't be uh, times of, of growth and dips, right? Like, like I said, world wars, etc. but the overall projection is the kingdom of God will grow slowly like a seed until it is victorious. And it's that victorious mindedness on God's kingdom not on some, not on the mere earthly power, right? This isn't about earthly power. That's what they think is, oh, you're trying to, you believe, you believe man should bring in the kingdom of God. No, no, it's God's spirit. It's his kingdom, not ours. He's the one growing it. But to acknowledge that God himself is the one growing his kingdom and that it is growing and that it is victorious is not to deny that there will be, you know, um, um, suffering along the way, because no great thing has come without great suffering, right? I mean, look at the ultimate, the ultimate moment of of apparent defeat in all of history was the death of the Son of God, because it was his resurrection that brought about that final, final glory. And so, in the same way, um, you know, we have, uh, you know, we have failures, some failures in history, of course. We're not perfect. The church is not perfect, full of sinners too, right? Um, but, like you said it's it's seeing keeping your mind on what the Bible says, not what we see this is another general hermeneutic principle that just so many Christians get wrong. It's like we get our theology from what we see rather than from the Bible. It's like, wait, what if i if you look around you, like right now you know you could easily look at around you and say, the country's gone, you know I mean, look at trans ideology. Uh, wokeness is controlling every major institution. They're starting to persecute Christians. You know they're going to cut us out of jobs. All this kind of stuff. That, you, you know, the, the universal uh, digital currency will control our lives. Um, um, and uh, oh, I lost my train of thought again. Um, so oh, so we're, we're we we if we're looking at the world around us and we're looking at all the evil. And we're thinking, well see, that just proves evil is more victorious. Like, hello, what does the Bible say? Great is he is in you than he is the world. What what do you do when you're living your life and you're feeling like a failure, you're looking at it, what do you do? You, t- you realize the word of God is what's true, not what you feel, not what you see around you. And you realize you are a son of God, you are a child of God, you have the Holy Spirit, you have all that you need um, with the word of God to to be trained in righteousness, right? So you have these things And uh, are you gonna believe that that's truer of you or you're gonna believe what you think you see in the external world? God's spirit and his word is true even if it doesn't look like it all around us, right? That's the principle of living the Christian life, period. So, if you're drawing your theology from looking at what you look at now, and, and the, the other thing is that that's just, you're just looking at America, and maybe there are other places that are worse, for sure, but you're looking at America, but America can fall, and that doesn't mean the whole world is fall, that just means America fell, and then something good can come out of the ashes, just like it originally began, right? So, just because something is really bad, like even in America, and just even if America falls, all empires rise and fall, right? So... That doesn't make it prophecy, that just means all empires rise and fall. But oftentimes it's the goodness comes out of the ashes of that fallen empire that, you know, that's how Christianity rose out of the ashes of the Roman empire, right? So um, it's a matter of perspective that can determine what you're going to see and, uh, and how you're gonna interpret scriptures, unfortunately. you know, But my goal is to seek, and look, we all have biases, and we all bring biases to the text. The goal is, to seek to to seek to understand, despite my bias, to try to be able to be objective enough to seek to understand God's Word, um, you know, in the, in the power of the Holy Spirit, to seek to understand it, and that s- sometimes we come to a realization the Bible's saying something that's very different from what I think or feel, and then I have to change my mind on that because I have to trust the Bible, not my own feelings. That's what I'm saying about this whole historical thing and and end times and all that, the or the, the sort of um, the mode that you're taking as a Christian. Are you gonna look at this victoriously or as a failure that we're rescued from? That, those are the biases. You have to get past your own bias and seek to say, well, but what does the text say? What does the Bible actually say? And if it's different from what I think or feel, then I have to adjust my, my thinking to what God says, not to what I see in the real world and not the real world, even not to what I see in the external world around me, because that's not what's really going on in the heavenlies, is it?
1: Absolutely, Brian, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you breaking down and answer, breaking down all of these things from this partial preterist view because it's important that we look at things from different perspectives and that if we want to have, what is it? Neuroplasticity, we've got to learn new things and, and try to kind of stretch our, our minds and our things that we we believe and challenge what we believe and think about things from another perspective. So one thing I want to encourage um, anyone listening who. This is new to you. Check out Brian's books, The Chronicles of the Apocalypse. Again, you can get them on Amazon. They're, they, I really enjoyed them. Like he said, putting flesh on the bones of, of that theology. Even if this is new to you, you'll get to... He paints a great picture of what this view looked like back then. So even if it's new to you, at the very least, they're very entertaining. So, so check them out. And then if you want to... If you want to see Dr. Heiser's work and the work of others like Dr. Judd come alive in your mind, also check out the Chronicles of the Nephilim. Both of them really helped me wrap my head around the Divine Council worldview, Deuteronomy 32, and all of that. So, Brian, again, thank you so much for coming on where can people find you if they want to follow you on social media you're on facebook
0: yeah i yeah i'm on facebook brian godow i have an author's page as well as a um, personal page i guess but my website i have a lot of material there for just about my books free articles related to the kind of stuff i write about and a lot of cool artwork and stuff related to my novels so if you want to learn about that stuff you can go there there's a lot of great stuff there um but you know all my books are, are exclusively on Amazon, but they're also in digital as well as paperback, some are in hardback, and almost everything's in audiobook as well. So they're all available exclusively at Amazon. So, and I, you know, I got them down to low prices. So uh, they're very affordable. And um, you go, just go straight there. And you can read all the, all, all the uh, book descriptions I have there to, to help launch you into which one to start with.
1: Yeah, and your Audible books are awesome. You read them, and do a fantastic job. I I loved uh, listening. I I would bounce back and forth between reading a book and then listening to to a book on Audible as I was going through the Chronicles of the Nephilim and then Chronicles of the Apocalypse. So, cool. yeah, the, they they were great. It reminded me of like radio theater like back in the day with just the way you did the voices and then the different music that you would have throughout. Fantastic. Um, all right. I'm done fanboying out, uh, with you, Brian. we we appreciate you coming on and, and, uh, we, we hope to have you on again in the future. We just love, love having these conversations.
0: I'd be happy to Chris.
2: Yeah, he's not done, so. <laughs> Maybe just for tonight.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's absolutely. Like, in fact, you know, yeah, if you, if you, you, no doubt, you'll get some responses, and, you know, I'd be happy to come on and talk more about some of these things, because, yeah, tonight was just sort of a rambling jumping around, right? Um, by the way, that's another thing, too. Actually, on, if people are interested, on um, YouTube, I did a, a few series with, uh um I think it's on Through the Black, Jared. Uh, he he has a, he's a friend of mine, and we did a whole series going through the Book of Revelation and multiple uh, Old Testament books, talking about these prophecies, and um, talking about Matthew twenty four uh, exegetically, right? And it's it's for free, so if you can find it on there, I think it's uh, Through the Black podcast. Which wait a minute, let give me a second here. I think I can actually be a little bit more specific because I know it's hard to find things sometimes. Um, So yeah, if you look up, for example, on YouTube. So actually, it's just called uh, Revelation and End Times Bible Prophecy. Jared 2.0 is the channel. That's what it is, Jared 2.0. And he's a great brother that that we've connected up. And we've done a bunch of videos going through Revelation and then also other ones on... Other Old Testament books, so that might be really helpful.
1: Awesome, yeah. I'll find the link and we will we will link it in the show notes as well for people that want to check that out.
0: Cool. I'll send them to you. Just want
2: to float this out there too. Um, we just started the membership thing, and so um, so it's pretty small crew. But it'd be really really cool if in a month or two, maybe if you'd want to do like a like a members chat with us. That would sure,
0: be- I'd be yep. happy to. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, that would be awesome.
1: Yeah. All right.
2: I think love that.
1: Cool. All Thanks right, for having Brian. me, guys. Yeah, thank you so much. It was great. It's
2: great to see you again.
1: Bye bye. All right, guys. Until next time. See ya. Peace.